The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I mean, I think that there's no question we've received greater scrutiny over the last year and a half, probably as we should have, you know, given the ubiquity of our product and the roles, you know, the role we're playing in people's lives on the planet. At the same time, I think what it does is it gives us the ability to engage with governments and to actually open up channels of communication with them that can allow us to, to work through issues or avoid you know, miscalculations or misunderstandings. Uh, I don't think that. I actually know that because that, that's happened. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, December 2nd, 2021. We're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. This week, Ellen Dueck and I spoke with some of the people behind the app that, at this point in the pandemic, you're probably sick of, Zoom. Our guests were Josh Kalmer, Zoom's head of global public policy and government relations, and Josh Parecki, Zoom's associate general counsel and head of trust and safety. Most of us have used Zoom regularly over the last couple years, thanks to COVID-19. But while you're likely familiar with the platform as a mechanism for work meetings and virtual happy hours, you may not have thought about it in the context of content moderation. Josh and Josh explained to us the kinds of content moderation issues they grapple with in their roles at Zoom, how their moderation and user appeals process works, and why Zoom doesn't think of itself more like a phone line or a mail carrier. Services that are almost entirely hands-off when it comes to the content they carry. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 2nd. How Zoom thinks about content moderation. To start off, since we're going to be referring to both of you as Josh, I wondered if it might be helpful to listeners to if you could just introduce yourselves, uh, last name included, and uh, tell us what you do at Zoom. Sure, I'll, I'll start. I'm Josh Kalmer. Uh, I'm the head of global public policy and government relations for Zoom. And uh, I'm Josh Parecki. I'm the head of trust and safety and associate general counsel at Zoom. Great. Thank you. So from, from here on out, we're, we're going to refer to you as a uh, trust and safety, Josh, and public policy, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. So I want to start by framing why we're having you on the show. We call ourselves Arbiters of Truth. We're about, you know, the information ecosystem. We talk a lot about content moderation. But I think probably when most people think about Zoom, they're not thinking about content moderation. They're thinking about a service that is essentially, you know, like the telephone. It connects you with someone. It's kind of like, you know, a a pipe rather than a platform engaged in content moderation. So, For the listeners who are confused about why we might want to talk to people from Zoom in the context of content moderation, tell us what kind of issues come up. Yeah, sure. I'll start. This is uh, trust and safety, Josh. So I think like I I like to start by talking about a little bit of the Zoom journey, and I I, I won't talk for hours like I want to do, but it's important to frame the context of your question to understand that journey. So I would start in late 2019, Zoom for the most part was what like a B2B or business to business platform. Large enterprises used it to communicate with one another. And then uh, the pandemic hit in 2020 and uh, Zoom's use changed dramatically. As we say, sort of publicly, our uh, user base or at least daily uses of Zoom uh, went up to around 300 million daily uses 
And that included a lot of different types of people for a lot of different types of things in the pandemic. Everything from those business to business calls to happy hours uh, after work. And we also started to see with the ubiquity of Zoom's use, we, we also started to see a lot of people that would uh, disrupt Zoom meetings, for example, um, as they're referred to Zoom bombing. And so the issue is, is that when people started to disrupt those meetings, they would do it in a variety of different ways that were, was abusive. And so from our standpoint, if we're going to take action, which let's say, use the word would discipline a user for its abuse um, on Zoom, we had to come up with a framework by which we would make those sorts of decisions. And so that framework became our community standards, which govern the type of good conduct that could or should happen on Zoom. And so we use those community standards to take proportional action against those users, which do things like abuse others using the Zoom platform. Yeah, so it's kind of hard to believe now when I basically feel like I live in Zoomland, but I myself had never heard of Zoom before the start of the pandemic. Uh, and now, like I said, uh, it feels like at least once a day. I was looking up some stats on Wikipedia. You mentioned the one about 300 million daily uses from 10 million just before the pandemic started. The one that blew my mind the most was uh, on one day in March 2020, apparently the Zoom app was downloaded 2.13 million times. So that's quite the growth chart. And often, you know, I think as you were just describing, like you, you sort of had a speed run through the content moderation life cycle, right? Like most platforms they set up, they're not really thinking about content moderation. They have a business goal, a service that they want to provide and they, you know, start to have success and, and, um, and that sort of takes off. And then it's once you have more users and more popularity and scrutiny that the, the content moderation issues start to crop up. And I'm wondering if that was sort of of your experience that it was not so much something that was sort of necessarily built in from the start, but that you were having this feeling of building the plane while you were flying it, given that explosive growth and what that was like. Yeah, I, I think building the plane while it's flying is a good analogy. It's actually one I use sometimes when we interview new candidates for Zoom, like asking whether you're comfortable coming to a place where you may be building while flying. <laughs> I think that's the that's the right description, right? You know, seeing that tremendous spike in growth, we saw that now we have this responsibility to very th be very thoughtful in how we view how we view things like content moderation on the platform. And it sort of spurred us to think very proactively, like what is the foundation that we need to put in place um, as we anticipate the increasing use of Zoom and the increasing types of use of Zoom. So what's the biggest lesson that you feel like you've learned as you've kind of gone through this trial by fire over the last couple of years? Like, what's the biggest surprise about trust and safety that you you didn't expect in, in running the platform? Uh, what a great question. I think for me, it's when it comes to the Internet, it literally is only bounded by human imagination for both the mm. good and the, and the evil, so to speak. And thinking uh, at the outset, when we're thinking about new products and product uses, about how to, to make the product more safe and to do so in a proportional and transparent manner, that's been sort of the biggest challenge is like, again, sort of thinking about the product, the product's use, how people have used the product in unanticipated ways and how to think about being fair and privacy preserving and free speech preserving at the same time. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll, I'll add one which is related, but a little bit distinct. The greatest lesson, I think, is is one that actually I, I think our CEO modeled early on, which is just be direct, open up to the challenges you're facing when you need to do something better, do it better right away and work on it and learn and then kind of hold yourself out on an ongoing basis in a way that kind of continues to, to make you better. And I think that's something we, we try to do, we strive to do at least, and it's at least for me been a really important lesson. Well, I want to sort of maybe start by talking about some of the more everyday examples. And I was going through your community standards and there were a number of rules in there that I think would probably really surprise people to hear uh, that these govern their calls when they're sitting on Zoom. So for example, um, 
sensitive content is prohibited on Zoom, which includes adult content, uh, which includes pornography and other content intended to cause sexual arousal and most nudity. Um, so, you know, content intended to cause sexual arousal, I'll have to really uh, cut back on my flirting, I guess. Um, and um, I'm a bit worried about this one too. Uh, you, you also may not use Zoom to defame others. And I'm doing a mental check of all my Zoom conversations. And I, you know, I, I absolutely cannot guarantee that I haven't defamed anyone on Zoom. <laughs> and before we get to like how you implement those in practice, I guess my question is, um, why? Like, why get into the business of moderation? I, I, You can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I guess your community standards include a lot of categories that you have no legal obligation to take down. You could just not do this. And, you know, while there's, you know, an expectation at the application layer, so the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Discords or whatever, that they will do content moderation, you know, there, there seems to have seems to me that there could have been a moment in Zoom's history where there was some meeting where it was like, do you want to go the route of just saying, no, we're a, we're a utility like the telephone or the postal service and it's not our job to interfere with what users do and we're just going to be dumb pipes? Like if people want to stream porn or, or be naked, who are we to, to judge? Um, on the other hand, that doesn't seem to be the route that you've gone down. So, I mean, you talked about the the Zoom bombing and I remember the, the Zoom bombing um, uh, explosion that sort of happened once everyone got onto Zoom. I mean, there is now a, a word for it. It, um, which you know shows how ubiquitous it was. But I'm curious why you decided to start getting your hands uh, dirty. For <laughs> excuse the pun. <laughs> it's actually a really great question. I think it goes back to what we talked about before, which is the evolution of the use of Zoom, right? And what we write in our uh, trust center is that our application of the community standards is highly context-based. For the most part, right? Zoom is not going to get in the middle of your meetings, right? So often I'm I'm in calls with with you know folks like yourself and others, and this, this question comes up, and I usually say, like, look, hey, in this small meeting with the five of us chatting, it's very unlikely that we're going to be enforcing a community standard. It's a private meeting. It's a, you know, like you said, we're sort of the dumb pipes uh, in that context. But um, Zoom is being used in a bunch of other contexts as well. So people host very large meetings. They uh, post them publicly uh, to the public. Uh, both in a meeting format or a webinar format or an event type format. And sometimes they uh, post them on YouTube. And that is a use case of, uh, of Zoom that sort of changed the way we have to look at it. And so, you know, when we look at a particular uh, very public meeting, if it turns out that somebody or a group of people come in and they, they drop, you know, racist propaganda in there or swastikas, which we've seen, or let's say they defame somebody by some legal definition, or they have a copyright violation, or or they, in some horrible cases uh, last year, display child sexual abuse material, then um, those are the circumstances where we need to be sort of equipped to be able to take transparent action and give a good reason to the user why we took action against them. We didn't pass the community standards to sort of get in the middle of people's private or corporate meetings. So I'm curious how you think about the interaction of those standards with perhaps excluding groups of people from using Zoom as a platform. So I've been doing a lot of work recently on FOSTA, the carve out to Section 230 for content related to sex trafficking. And so when I saw the prohibition on sensitive content, including pornography and other content intended to cause arousal, I thought, okay, so so I guess so no sex workers can use Zoom you know, even if they're just selling, you know, a, a striptease or something like that. I imagine that's a decision that you made that you you wanted to exclude that kind of content. But how do you think about the relationship between the community standards and sort of cutting groups of people off from using the platform? Yeah, I mean, I think like uh, we try to create, I mean, the, one of our core principles in Zoom is inclusivity in the sense that we want to make it an inclusive environment for people to use and to communicate with one another freely. You know, our commitment to end-to-end -end encryption, for example, is another, you know, uh, mechanism that we use to sort of preserve the ability for people to communicate privately with one another. But I think um, when we formulated our community standards, we actually sort of created a very deliberate process to do it. We actually created about, I want to say, 24 different scenarios. We actually presented them to our executives and had them evaluate each one of those scenarios. So we could use the, you know, them to expose them to different content scenarios and to use them to sort of bounce around. Like, like how do you envision 
the use of Zoom and how do you envision safe use of Zoom? And it was a really fascinating exercise because I think the executives that participated in it hadn't really even thought of Zoom and its potential uses in these different areas. And so it created, we had several sessions and it created some really very interesting conversations uh, where they evaluate each scenario and made determinations that based on our principles, based on our idea of how Zoom should be used, like how do we want to calibrate? And uh, and there were certain areas where we debated heavily. One of them was around nudity, which, um, you know, in that same sensitive content community standard, there's a little bit of a nuance there that allows nudity in certain circumstances. Um, and that was part of a uh, sort of an internal debate as we calibrated those community standards. So we're trying to you know, create a very inclusive environment on Zoom. We're trying to preserve privacy in terms of, you know, safe spaces for people to communicate with one another. But we did make some, you know, principled judgments, you know, about uh, what we anticipate Zoom, the use of Zoom. Okay, so you didn't decide to be like a telephone, but I think everyone's intuition and sort of my understanding, and, and we'll come back to this when we look at your transparency reports, you're also not a Facebook or a Twitter, if we look at the extent of content moderation that you do, it's far more uh, hands-off. And I think, you know, this comes back to the idea of sort of the layers in the internet stack. So if at the bottom you have all of the internet infrastructure and at the top you have the internet application layer, which is your Facebooks and your Gmails and other websites, Zoom does seem to sit somewhere in the middle. Um, and I do think we need to have a much more nuanced conversation about like what kind of roles do we want different layers of the internet stack to play? You know, I, I think it's my personal intuition would be that we do want Zoom to play a very different role to the Facebooks and the Twitters. Like I think that your role, um, the, the service that you provide uh, is very, very different to the service that, that Facebook and Twitter provides and the way that content moves on those platforms. You know, the amplification out and recommendation algorithms is very different from what uh, Zoom does, you know, to move the conversation forward. I think we do want to talk in a more nuanced way about how the platform's different. Now, you two were, were kind enough to ask me recently to come and talk to your colleagues um, about your platform and content moderation. One of the questions that you asked me was, what kind of platform is Zoom? Um, and so now I want to sort of turn the question back on to you and ask you, what kind of platform is Zoom? Like when you are thinking about the difference between your product and telephones or Facebook, what characteristics are important and how does that affect how you think about content moderation? So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question, Evelyn, and completely appreciate and think it's reasonable to, to turn it around to, towards us who, who work there, uh, who work at Zoom. I mean, I think, you know, as we discussed recently, there's no rule set for determining what kind of company a company is, right? There's no machine you can just put the company into and have it spit out a conclusion. We generally all have an understanding of what the stack involves along the lines of what you described, but there's nothing preordained about this. So so we need to have, you know, criteria or parameters for for figuring out, right? What are what are the right ways to think about content moderation for a given type of company? I think, you know, one factor that that we think is important is user expectations. You know, when somebody logs on to a Zoom call, just as when they, you know, either pick up the telephone or log on to social media or, you know, whatever, check their check their Dropbox, like what what are they what kind of experience are they expecting? For the most part, as Josh mentioned, our business has revolved around enterprises, business to business communications. That's of course changed somewhat in the pandemic, but I think it's still the core of the the business is is based on business communications and, and collaboration. What does that mean for expectations? I mean, I think it means that in large part, people come into Zoom thinking we're primarily a channel for communicating in a closed setting with end-to-end -end encryption if people want it to an identifiable or with an identifiable group of people in sort of a, a, a controllable way as opposed to being a place where content, whether written, voice, video, whatever, is intended to be available to the planet in perpetuity. Those kinds of expectations, in our view, are, are relevant. It doesn't mean that there ought to be no content moderation expectations, but it does mean that they should be commensurate with the kind of experience that most of our users or most people 
can tend to have. I think that's right. I mean, I think that that's the issue, right? Like we'd love to fit in that box, right? Where we're just the dumb pipe, so to speak. But I think that it's the use of Zoom that's forced us out a little bit. And, uh, you know, we still sort of have the advantage that we don't have persistent and amplified content, right? Like it doesn't sit somewhere, as Josh says, where somebody can access it over and over again or amplify it over and over again. But people do use Zoom very for very public purposes. Mm -hmm. um, and they do so all around the world. You know, and so I think in, a, in, in some of those cases where abuse has happened, whether it be a meeting disruption or other forms of abuse in the meeting, uh, they really turned to Zoom and, and expected that we help protect them and create safe environments for them. And, and it's been a call that we've gotten all over the world from our users, especially um, those that have been targeted based on, say, their, their race or sexual mm -hmm. orientation. And so it's really that that's caused us to sort of evaluate, like, can we still be the dumb pipes? Can we still take the um, more hands-off approach? And that that's really what, again, has sort of animated us towards this, this path that we're on right now. I'd love to ask you just a little bit more about the role of consumer expectations in how you think about your rules and your role, because one of the big debates in the content moderation sort of space is how do we think about platforms given that they are private businesses, you are a commercial entity that is trying to make money and a profit versus this kind of intuition that a lot of people have that there's something very public about these spaces. They're public regarding, you know, uh, some CEOs come out and say, we are the new public square. Um, I'm not sure that I've ever heard anyone from Zoom say that, but, you know, there is this idea that there's some sort of public interest in the rules and the services that platforms provide. And when we think about public interest, we often think about, you know, that's why there's this debate about free speech and the idea that there shouldn't be too much content moderation because it's important to have venues for speech, even if it's unpopular. And so sort of being driven by consumer expectations or majoritarian preferences isn't necessarily how we normally think free speech should work. And I'm wondering, you know, if you feel that tension when you're thinking about your rules, like, oh, the majority of our users want X to get rid of like so-and-so content, but we think that there should be, there is a role for that kind of content in public debate. And even though maybe, maybe that is what would be good for the majority of our users or commercially, or sort of in the short term, it would be a smart business decision. We're going to take a stand and not uh, make that rule because we think that there is some public interest and we have maybe like a social responsibility to keep that content up. Is that something that you think about? Or are you sort of, when you're talking about consumer expectations, is that your North Star? So no, I mean, I, th I think we try to operate on principles. I think that the other word I would, I would try to use, and this may sound like cliche or silly, but I, I believe it strongly. We operate with a lot of humility around this area. In partnership the, with Josh and others at Zoom, we've engaged with a lot of folks um, to try to figure out what the right balance is with civil society, to figure out exactly what the right balance is towards preserving free expression very broadly and globally against sort of the notion of, uh, I guess you could say safety, say, you know, user safety. I mean, every company is going to face what you've said, which is like commercial pressures, right? From some, you know, uh, we are, we have a lot of enterprise customers. So, you know, we could face pressure from one enterprise customer, do X or mm -hmm. from another enterprise customer, do Y. For the most part, we've had the luxury of, um, of being able to stick to our principles and having the support all the way through our CEO and C-suite to do that. I think, you know, any company that day could come where those decisions are going to be very, very uh, even more challenging. But thus far, again, sticking to principles and to process that we've created has really helped us survive having to sort of make hard, harder business decisions, I guess you could say. Would it make your life easier if someone answered this for you? I mean, imagine if you if the government did declare you a, a common carrier and said, you know, you're you're not allowed to ban any people or meetings that aren't illegal, where you haven't received a court order or other official order telling you to remove a, a user or a meeting. Because it, it seems like that would uh, potentially solve a lot of your headaches. You know, you could no longer be blamed for not taking down stuff because you've been told that you you can't. Is that a, a better world for you? I mean, it's a valid question. Absolutely. Whether it's a better world or not, we don't know. It would certainly increase certainty. Would it be the right place to land? We don't know, you know, because invariably you get into, you know, challenging situations, whether you're operating in the United States or in other countries around the world, especially if you've got 
different legal regimes, different you know social values, how those things interact with with international norms that we want to be respectful of, and that are core to the values of the of the company. That's a, a very live discussion that we have. I do think that it's the case that governments have a role to play, and and we try really hard to to be partners with with governments, even if we don't always agree with them. But it just we see it a lot in the debates out there, primarily in the social media space, but I think it extends more broadly that private companies, private tech executives are being called on to make pretty publicly important judgments about the, the balance here and, and what the right balance is between speech and other kinds of, of values, even with you know very well-meaning, thoughtful people. Uh, which we like to think, you know, we and our colleagues are, and and many others in the in the tech sector. You have to ask: Is that the right way, especially in democratic societies, that you want to kind of create the the frame for these decisions to be made? Yeah, I mean, I I really do agree with that, and have a lot of sympathy for your position. You know, it's much more fun to sit in my chair and criticize all the decisions that you make. Um, but I'm not sure I'd want to sit in your chair. And on the other side, it kind of makes me a little uneasy. Like, no offense, you know, both you, trust and safety, Josh, and you, public policy, Josh, you know, you seem very nice and thoughtful guys, but you're absolutely right. Like, I don't necessarily know that this is how we want to solve the deep-seated tension about the role of, you know, speech in, in society and what, what you know, versus safety and, and versus autonomy. So, and if countries haven't solved this or, you know, free speech theorists, my my people haven't solved this in, in the centuries that we've been working on it, I'm not sure, you know, if, if it's going to sort of be solved anytime soon, uh, no offense, in in, in Zoom HQ. But um, so I, I, can, I can sort of, you know, I, I can sort of imagine that having a government take it out of your hands, like, you know, that you could, that the free speech hot potato gets taken away from you might be nice. It might make your job uh, less exciting. But on the other hand, it might also make your job less exciting. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you'd think about that. So you mentioned the processes of content moderation that Zoom has. And I think that, you know, I'd, I'd love to talk about that a little bit more because I'm not sure that listeners would have much of an idea about how content moderation actually works at Zoom. Like, I think they'd probably be relieved to hear that you're not just sitting, listening in on every Zoom call, uh, waiting to hit the special red button that the Zoom people have that doesn't take three clicks to get out of a meeting. You can just end it immediately. Uh, would be nice if you rolled that out more uh, more broadly. Um, but I think, you know, what what tools that you have sort of affect what expectations people have of content moderation. Like there's no point asking Zoom to do a kind of content moderation that you just don't have the tools to to carry out. So how does content moderation at Zoom work? I mean, I assume you're not listening in on every call. So what, what how do you find violations of your community standards and take them down? Sure. So one is uh, we, we, so we published a lot of the process in our trust center. So just so other folks can take a look at it, but Let me sort of start by answering um, one pretty important question you had, which is like, we do not have the ability to listen into folks' meetings. So that is not a style of content moderation that um, Zoom uh, has available to it um, or would, would use. Users, again, back to what public policy Josh said, have the ability to have their meetings end encrypted, and there's really no way for us to um, tamper with that encryption. So largely the way that Zoom works in the context of content moderation is through reporting. And there are several different ways that a user can report abuse, like in the meeting or chat context. And one is within the meeting itself. Um, so we have a couple different ways where either the, both the participant or the host can report content from the meeting. And then when that happens within the meeting, it actually uh, will trigger a web form, which allows the user to provide us a little bit additional information. And then with that web form and in-meeting report, the trust and safety team has some user information, uh, metadata and information and related to the actual abuse report. And we evaluate that report. I like to use a preponderance of the evidence standard. uh, So sort of a 51% to determine whether we have sufficient evidence to indicate whether the abuse actually occurred or didn't occur just because people can abuse abuse reporting. And then uh, if if we have sufficient evidence, we take a range of action uh, depending on the abuse types. And then if a particular report or something that comes to our attention is is very controversial, right? So that the answer is not intuitive to the trust and safety analysts, um, there's an escalation pathway through a tiered review system. And so we have four tiers of that review. 
the first tier is sort of, you know, your tier one, your, your line analyst folks, your tier two are above those line analyst folks, and your tier three are folks like me. And then your tier four is a group of folks that we call our appeals panel which are a group of cross-functional folks from all over Zoom that were appointed by our executives to listen to cases. And so it's our own sort of internal Supreme Court, for lack of a better term. And we can we meet on a regular basis. And my team presents to that group um, neutrally, sort of like litigators, but just presenting some facts and let them debate the issue and come to uh, you know, a decision. And then we record all of our all of our findings in a uh, basically a, a log, so that way we have evidence of every decision we've made and why we've made it, and and that's basically it. If we take an adverse decision against a user, they have a appeal capability within Zoom, so they can click on an appeals form and fill out their appeal, and we'll consider the appeal in the same process, right? Like either granted on the tier one, tier two, tier three, or if necessary, the tier four appeals panel review. There are, we have a lot of work to do yet um, on some systems that we're working on right now to streamline our notification and appeals process. So more to come on that. Um, we're sort of constantly innovating around that. But for now, most of our, the way we handle content moderation is reactive and based on uh, reports from our, our users. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back 
and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So what I'm hearing is that we should expect a, a Zoom oversight board any day now. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, I do want to ask just about your, your staffing. How many people do you have working on these different tiers? And to what extent are you using outsourcing, like contracting for content moderation, if at all? So we use some uh, outsourcing. Uh, we are. Let me just sort of say at the outset, we are not of the size and scope of many of our social media counterparts. So, um, you know, in our transparency report, which I know we're, we'll get to in a little while, we sort of give a sense of how many reports we see. And so uh, our tier one review does involve some contractors, but a relatively small group of contractors who then are reviewed by our tier two, which are the full-time trust and safety Zoom analysts. And that's a, you know, medium-ish size team, about 12-ish full-time analysts. And then if they have an escalation beyond that, it'll report to my leadership team, which is now uh, myself and five leaders um, from different parts of trust and safety. And so we'll convene and sort of discuss, including some lawyers, and uh, discuss the case and see if we feel comfortable making the call or if, again, we believe it's still in the gray, we'll escalate to our appeals panel, which, which is a team of about eight. So that's, that's a fairly robust and extensive appeals process. And, you know, Quinta made the joke about the, the Zob, uh, the Zoom oversight board. But, I mean, it does raise an interesting question, right, which is that you're by the sounds of things, being very thoughtful and it's uh, about these really legitimately very hard decisions. You know, they're not obvious cases and you're not just flipping a coin. You're, you know, really trying to work through it like lawyers, you know, presenting an argument and, and things like that. But one of the merits of the oversight board, which, you know, I've sort of spoken and written about it as someone that's like cautiously optimistic about it is because these are hard decisions and because, you know, you're nice guys, but not necessarily like people that we, you know, want to blindly trust with these really hard decisions, we should make the reasoning public and at least subject it to some sort of scrutiny and have like public conversation about it, but also, you know, help develop the conversation, put people on notice about how you're thinking about these rules in the gray areas that aren't so obvious on the face of the rules. It's comforting that you come on the podcast and say, you know, we are really thinking about it. We have this very robust appeals process, but the public isn't getting any of the benefit of that. And so I'm curious whether you are open to or would think about making some more of that public and building out more sort of case studies or some way of giving people, because, you know, the good thing is potentially like, it doesn't seem like Zoom's going anywhere. Like it seems like Zoom is like getting baked into society as part of our infrastructure for at least the foreseeable future. And so it sort of seems important that these, you know, really difficult consequential decisions that you're making are, you know, that we have more information about them. And so I'm curious how you think about transparency there. So I have two reactions. One is, so it's definitely not the two Joshes that are making the final call. Mm -hmm. um, and the system is designed to prevent that, actually. Uh, and it's also designed, our internal system is designed to empower 
zoomies from different backgrounds and different parts of the company to weigh in that have a vested interest like we're all shareholders in zoom so they're all have a strong vested interest in steering the direction of zoom from a policy perspective so that includes some engineers and salespeople and you know product people and lawyers, right, all sort of thinking about the problem. So again, it's not just those of us that um, listen to this podcast every week, um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, thinking about the issues and then contributing to the outcome of the issues. And we thought that was a really important and nuanced approach, right? Because I think like uh, us lawyer types, you know, we'll, we'll sort of drift into our Supreme Court jurisprudence and, you know, lawyering everything. And, you know, sometimes people that are on the ground dealing with our customers on a day to day basis, designing the product, thinking about the product, engineering the product, have a really unique and helpful perspective in how to evaluate these controversial issues. So we sort of designed it that way. Now, in terms of like the sort of public facing aspect of the decision, this will sound a little bit like a cop out, but I don't mean it to be. But like for for us, almost anything's on the table. We just have to evaluate how we would do it. And I think you know certainly if Zoom continues to grow and and our product continues to offer you know new and interesting use cases, then you know where where the appeals panel is used you know more and more often, then building a case for that uh, makes a lot of sense. I mean we we have already designed it in such a way that that our opinions are recorded. For posterity, at least internally, so it, you know, it wouldn't take much of a change. We just had to think through how to do it to offer those case studies, you know, for public consumption. Okay, so that's super fascinating. And obviously, uh, as the academic on this podcast, I'm like, yes, please, like, um, <laughs> press, press, publish. Um, uh, going to be uh, pestering you about that. Um, that sounds like a goldmine of really interesting case studies for for content moderation that would help move the ball forward and help move this this discussion that we were sort of talking about earlier about how we should think about different layers of the internet stack differently. But then I guess, you know, um, there is a reason why you haven't published these, I suppose. And I, I guess, like, it's a, it's a question that I had more generally, which is kind of, you know, why are you coming on this podcast? Why are you doing transparency reporting at all? Like, there's no obligation to. I'm really grateful. It's fantastic for me. I think it's fantastic for society to sort of be having at least some transparency around this. And the numbers that you give, I think, are, are great because it's insight that we just wouldn't have uh, otherwise. But I'm I'm wondering what's in it for you. Like, why why are you here? I, I'm sure it's not, you know, so that you can brag at a party that you were on the Arbiters <laughs> of Truth podcast or, or anything like that. <laughs> uh, we'll say you a mug um yeah so so what why are you doing this transparency reporting why are you talking to us like what you know it seems to me that the more transparent you are the more that you talk to me uh on this podcast and, and quinta grills you you're opening yourself up to, to criticism this is you know what i call like the the youtube gambit which is they don't talk very much publicly at all and it seems to be that they get away from as much scrutiny as the other platforms in part because of that so yeah you know thanks but but what's in it for you so look, I think I think if we're going to enforce, if we're going to take enforcement action against our users, we owe a level of transparency. I think that's the principled uh, right approach. And you know, we we have we've deplatformed users based on their abuse of other users in the context again of Zoom bombing or meeting disruptions and other forms of abuse that have been reported to us. And and we feel like that demands a certain level of transparency. Like, what are we doing? I think it it ultimately help show that we're a good corporate citizen, you know, to be transparent. I think even to the extent that we have enterprise customers, they'll ask questions, right? Like, just like the ones that you've asked today, like, what, why do we have community standards and how do you use them? And it does tell a good, cleaner narrative about uh, how we use our community standards and what circumstances and what types of abuse we see on Zoom. And it actually, I think, uh, helps us, you know, again, be very... Uh, mm -hmm open with our user base and the communities with which Zoom operates. And I think all the way up to our, again, our executives, we believe in engaging, you know, and having even very hard conversations uh, with folks that might disagree with us and to have some material to have those discussions, I think, I think become becomes really important. I don't know, Josh, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, it is certainly to be a good corporate citizen, but it's also in our interest. I mean, we as a company over the last year and a half, 
it's very public. I'm not, you know, breaking any news. We've had challenges. Like there have been a number of things that have been learning moments for the company. And there will continue to be as, as there are for any thoughtful company. Not one of them, to my mind, as far as I can recollect, has arisen as a result of too much transparency, too much engagement, too much being open and direct about what we're facing. In other words, I mean, we just, th this helps us. Like, this is good for our company to engage with, with you, to engage with the U.S. Congress, to engage with regulators around the world, with our customers and the public. It, but it can be, you know, it can be a little painful. It can be a, a little awkward sometimes in the short term. But we, we just find that it consistently sharpens our thinking and makes us, you know, allows a group of what we like to think of, again, as thoughtful people to kind of be more effective and more targeted and, and more deliberate about the things we're actually going to do to continue to improve. So let's talk about some of those learning moments that you described. I think the the first instance I, I wanted to talk about was uh, when some Zoom events were shut down that were related to the commemoration of the Tiananmen Square massacre at the request of the Chinese government. I know you all posted some blog posts about it at the time, but the big question that I have is, you know, several several months out or a year out from that, what kind of reassurance do users have that that kind of thing won't happen again if they're using Zoom to organize an event that is, you know, political in nature that a government around the world might not like? What kind of protections do you have in place? So I think uh, back to the prior question, some transparency, right? So now there won't be a request that comes from a government that is not recorded in our government requests, our, our transparency report around government requests. So for example, you know, if the Chinese government continued to ask us to take action to, you know, against a meeting, like their request will now be recorded in our transparency report and what we did about it will be recorded in our transparency report. And I think that's really important. Also, we've just uh, been focused since that last June on building, building a lot of resilience in our, uh, in both Josh's policy side of the house and then, you know, the trust and safety side of the house is building our whole system about how we handle government requests, the thoughtfulness in which we consider government requests, like the rationale for turning them down. And again, and our transparency around how we how we handle each of those approaches. And we we thus far have turned down government requests, including as we as reflected in our uh, transparency report this last year, we turned down some from the Chinese government. And so I think you know we've we've made a very strong commitment to free expression beyond just saying that. Um, we published it in our in our trust center, and for example, we've published not just a commitment towards free expression and the trust center itself, but also a commitment towards academic freedom, for example, to help protect the academic environment and academic freedom in that environment. So, so what we try to do is, is just provide as much assurances through the transparency in our process and our government request guide and in our transparency report and in the way that we uh, externally describe our trust and safety processes, and we adhere to those processes, um, including the appeals panel that we've talked about to take those hard, hard and controversial cases up. So I think that's what we try to make very clear to our users that we are, when we say we committed to your to free expression on Zoom, we really try to build a lot of resilience around that commitment. Yeah. And Quinta, I mean, the, the example you cite is actually the, the perfect data point. We had the situation in June of 2020 and since that time, it's, as Josh mentioned, it's been the development of internal policies. It's been you know, the development of internal procedures for thinking through these issues, messaging to the outside world, coupled with substantially increased engagement with governments around these issues, heightened C-suite awareness of these issues. I mean, we started planning for June 4th, 2021 in March. It was very deliberate. And we had all of these tools as well as a lot more people just throughout the company with different roles to play. And so the the fact that we didn't have a story in 2021 like we did in 2020 is not an accident. So can you talk a little bit more in detail about how your relationship with governments has evolved over time? Like, Does becoming a bigger platform, more prominent, a heavier hitter give you more leverage to resist government pressure at all? Or are you facing more pressure because of your prominence? Boy, it's a, it's a great question and I think probably hard 
to know which of those it, it could actually be both. I mean, I think that there's no question we've received greater scrutiny over the last year and a half, probably as we should have, you know, given the ubiquity of our product and the roles, you know, the role we're playing in people's lives on the planet. At the same time, I think what it does is it gives us the ability to engage with governments and to actually open up channels of communication with them that can allow us to, to work through issues or avoid you know, miscalculations or misunderstandings. Uh, I don't think that I actually know that because that, that's happened. An interesting data point, just last week, we learned of a, of a major government where we have not engaged with them yet. And, and we heard them wondering why not, you know, why hasn't Zoom reached out to us? And that was a, again, learning moment for me. Here's another government we need to reach out to. But I think it does, it it does increase the scrutiny. We're, We're particularly in an environment now where, you know, terms like digital sovereignty are thrown around a lot. And there is a strong desire by a lot of governments, whether they're doing it for security purposes or to protect people's personal data or economic development or whatever to pressure companies to to localize in some way whether that's putting servers in country or you know having data reside there or establishing legal entities in addition to potential content moderation type pressures we're we're seeing all of that uh, i think it's a trend that's affecting most if not all tech companies that are global but I, I do think that over time, we've felt like we have more of an ability to shape the outcome. I, I don't want to say, you know, necessarily leverage to resist, but more of an ability, more of an ability to resist in certain cases and, and, and more of an ability to, to shape outcomes in ways that are consistent with our values, consistent with our, you know, customer expectations and their welfare, but also hopefully consistent with the government's, you know, perceptions of what they're trying to do for their citizens. I mean, the only thing I would add is that, you know, I've got a fantastic lawyer on my team and uh, she's particularly good at just picking up the phone. And so like sometimes, and, you know, Josh is also uh, amazing about this, but sometimes like just having a conversation with a government stakeholder and understanding where they're coming from uh, and what they're thinking about and whether there is a misunderstanding that they're laboring under is just incredibly valuable. Okay, but I want to follow up a little bit more on that because, um, you know, you're talking about the the benefits of a good relationship with governments and greater sort of collaboration and conversation and smoothing out misunderstandings. But, you know, again, and this sort of goes back to the consumer expectations, customer expectations. Um, this is not necessarily how me and my folk and sort of free speech theorists think about how free speech issues should be decided, right? Like one of the points of free speech rights um, is protection against government interference. And this idea, like one of the sympathies that I have for platforms and, and people that work within them is that they're often put in the unenviable position of having to stand up to governments for their users when, you know, like they're, they're a business. Why are they in this position of having having to make those calls? And I, like, I, I, again, I want to tra- congratulate you on your transparency. You have an amazing uh, Excel spreadsheet that you release of government requests for, for takedowns and you go line by line revealing, uh, sort of detailing the nature, source and response to each request, which is like a phenomenal phenomenal level of transparency. I think it's really, really cool. But on the other hand, and it only had sort of 309 requests in the first half of 2021. And, you know, if I was to be suspicious, I could think, well, that might be because it only covers formal requests and informal requests and conversations where you're sort of making decisions um, that don't sort of come through those official channels wouldn't show up in that transparency report. And so I get, again, I guess, you know, the, the question is like, what reassurances do you have for us? And like, why is it necessarily a good thing that you're having these conversations with governments behind closed doors? So I, I think two, two, two reactions to that. Um, one is like, you, we can bucket countries and those where those, those conversations are more productive versus those where those conversations maybe are less productive. But even if it's say like, a, a, let's, let's say a regime that is not free speech preserving, sometimes even a conversation just to back them down can be helpful, right? Um, but Zoom is not afraid to protect our users and to litigate, and we have in some cases, you know, to protect our users. 
in, in terms of uh, to answer the question about the transparency report, like what you see is what you get. Like we've made it very, very clear internal to Zoom. Um, we have a, an internal protocol that all Zoom employees are trained on. And the consequence for failing to meet that protocol is termination, that all government requests have to come in through a, a central channel of people, um, which mm -hmm. are on my team. And there are no exceptions to that. And we've designed that on purpose. Yeah. And actually, that's what, what I was going to respond with as well, which is it happens. We do get informal requests and and not just because of the, the protocol, but because of the the culture largely that Josh and his team have, have built around these issues, we essentially give them the stiff arm. We're like, this needs to go through the formal process. We've made it easy. We've made it transparent. And you know, like th this is a real live thing that we, that we run into. Yeah. And we enforce it not just with an internal policy, but in terms of uh, access controls, uh, in technical internal access controls. So it's, I can't say impossible, but um, very, it would be very, very difficult for a Zoomy to uh, answer a government request, whether it's to take down certain content or to obtain Zoom user data without coming through my team. So it is something that has been a very, very solid focus of Zoom over the last year to create that exact uh, security internal to Zoom. Okay, so you mentioned academic freedom, and this is probably, if anyone knows anything about Zoom and, and content moderation controversies, this is probably uh, the second one after Tiananmen Square that they might have heard of, um, which is Zoom shutting down some academic events that included a, a Palestinian activist. So at the time, Zoom cited US laws prohibiting material support of terrorist organizations because the activist Leila Khaled was a member of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is on the US government foreign terrorist organization list. But, you know, it, it's by no means clear that the law would capture simply hosting an academic event that included a member of an FTO. And it's, you know, it's also, the, again, this tension that we were talking about, about like, why is Zoom interfering with these academics who want to hold these these academic events? Um, and so in response, you have, as you mentioned before, released a new academic freedom policy, which, uh, and I quote here, for Zoom meetings and webinars hosted by a higher education institution, uh, the trust and safety team will only act on reports alleging content-related violations in our community standards or terms of service that come from the meetings host or the accounts owners or administrators. And so that may have covered the Khaled meetings because in those cases, the events were reported by third parties, including the Jewish legal advocacy group, uh, the Lawfare Project. Except there's a carve out in the academic policy for instances where Zoom determines that there's a legal or regulatory risk for Zoom if it does not act. And so I guess I'm wanting to sort of ask about that carve out and your thinking there, because does the academic freedom policy actually solve the issues that cropped up in that case, or does it still sort of turn on the way in which, how broadly or conservatively you want to uh, interpret the material support laws? Yeah, so it's a great question. So the Leila Khaled journey is one that uh, you know spanned a, you know almost over a nine month period. And the reason I say that is the first Leila Khaled meetings, which happened at San Francisco State University, we took the decision not to allow the event. And after that, we engaged a lot uh, with uh, universities and university leadership all over the United States. In fact, we hosted a forum with some university leadership and faculty leadership to discuss like what should our approach be in the context of academic freedom. And, and uh, we actually uh, circulated that academic freedom policy as part of that engagement and let them, a bunch of stakeholders uh, in the university environment actually comment on that policy and provide suggestions. And in fact, now uh, it, it sometimes is attached to an addendum to certain contracts with the universities. So you know, we we sort of took a lot of thought behind that, but I'll focus for a minute on on Leila Khaled and that event in particular. So there, we acknowledged in our conversations, and I've made I've actually engaged in a, a panel. I don't think it was watched very much, but <laughs> that's okay with me. It's not arbiters, um, not arbiters of truth. You don't have your listener base, but uh, with the University of California Berkeley, with, with um, a second professor from UC Merced and a professor from Yale and a professor from St. John's. 
and a professor from Berkeley where we talked about academic freedom and specifically the, the, the second Layla Collette events, um, which we also did not allow to proceed. And our view on, on Layla Khaled was that, as you said, the material support law and the current state of the law is, is not horribly clear, you know, ultimately whether allowing Layla Khaled on our platform would be the provision of services. And the, the evaluation we have to do is first and foremost under our principles, like what should we do? But second, um, is there still risk to Zoom, right? Is there risk that uh, Zoom could be under you know, legal scrutiny for providing services via Layla Khaled. And part of the discussion we had with the universities was like, well, you know, if she is just sticking, if, if Ms. Khaled was just sticking to, you know, the content identified in the seminar, which is, which the different seminars were, were not focused on the PFLP activities, like that's not really material support. So would you be comfortable with that? And, and when we evaluated the second event, one of the reasons we became a little bit less comfortable with that is because during the first event, some comments were made by Leila Khaled, which could be interpreted could be interpreted by folks that she was calling for violence. So that means that if in a second event, if Ms. Khaled did the same thing, is she calling for violence in support of the PFLP, uh, which could arguably make it uh, material support or provision of services? We acknowledged to the universities that we have talked with about this that that's a narrow theory, and uh, it's possible the Department of Justice and you know could say no way we'll never prosecute that case. That's certainly possible. Uh, we acknowledge it's narrow, but we took the decision to not allow Miss Miss Khaled uh, to be hosted on on the Zoom platform. Ultimately, we reserved that when we when we discussed the academic freedom comment with our university partners that engaged with us. We specifically reserved that right in that provision to say that in those circumstances, Zoom could still take the decision to not allow somebody like Ms. Khaled or somebody else maybe that was affiliated with the designated terrorist organization or subject to maybe export control or sanction. And so we, we reserved that right. But what we were trying to commit to in that academic freedom is uh, commitment is, is like that. We wanted to make it very, very clear that it is extremely narrow. A, the circumstance where Zoom would ever uh, interfere with a university's uh, right to academic freedom. So I think there's a lot to discuss there about that case and a lot of questions I'd like to ask, but unfortunately, I think we're out of time. So to finish, I wanted to ask you, what keeps you up at night? What's the biggest headache or challenge for a platform like Zoom when you're thinking about trust and safety and what the biggest risk is that you see on the horizon? Is it more situations like Lala Khaled? Is it more situations like requests from uh, authoritarian governments to limit speech? What are you worried about? Yeah, I, I like less on the Leila Khaled side, more on the, maybe this sounds cliche, but like, I'm really concerned about our users' overall safety while at the same time, again, I mean, this is going to sound repetitive, but while at the same time, preserving our users' right to communicate freely with one another. And I, I, I get concerned, you know, about the global regulatory landscape and how we're going to navigate some of those sticky wickets while we, you know, again, try to make it a very safe spot while also trying to let people communicate safely and securely with one another. And so, you know, at some point or another, it feels like we're going to have to make even harder decisions um, as certain governments, and I'm not talking about just authoritarian ones, <laughs> while certain governments pivot in one direction or the other, and it's going to force us to, to either, you know, either litigate hard, you know, or, or if we can't litigate, do something else, <laughs> make a decision. Do we not go into that country? Are we willing to, you know, sacrifice entry into a certain country or withdrawal from a certain country? Mm -hmm. Uh, and even that carries like big consequences, right? Because just because a country is authoritarian, authoritarian and not privacy or freedom preserving um, doesn't mean that there aren't wonderful people in that country that really want to be able to talk to their moms and their sisters and their grandparents and their best friends. And Zoom is designed to allow people to connect with one another. And it, and it would be a shame if we had to retreat from certain countries and deprive just regular people from the ability to communicate with one another. That's really well said. I, I, mine is very similar. I often describe the situations we find ourselves in as the, the trash compactor scene from Star Wars, right? Where particularly at the global level, 
we've got different norms, different legal regimes in different parts of the world, all of whom we're trying to connect and that we're committed to connecting for exactly the reasons Josh said. But increasingly, you know, governments are diverging from one another. They're, they're carving out and, and jealously guarding their space and their ability to regulate uh, within their, you know, the, the perceived zone of digital activity that occurs within their jurisdiction. And so it's not, you know, this has been happening for a few years, but I think it's sharpening now that increasingly the act of complying with the law in one jurisdiction is itself a violation of the law in another jurisdiction. And, and that's independent of the, the equally, if not more important questions around human rights and free expression and privacy that we try to uphold. So I just think we, we find ourselves almost like in a multi-dimensional trash compactor a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And the thing that keeps me up at night is, you know, the next fact pattern that we're going to run into where, you know, it's our, it's our users, it's our employees, it's our service, it's our ability to connect people that are all on, on the line or could be. All right. Let's leave it at multidimensional trash compactor. <laughs> Josh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you thank so you much, to much. You. This is great. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Briggins Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yam. Our audio engineer was Kara Schillen. And our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast and whatever app you use. And consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>